but this book, if I could only have one book, and that's the only one I could have, I would have the book of Ephesians because it basically has the whole gospel in there. Paul's style of writing, and it's in Ephesians, it's in Colossians, um, it's to some degree in First Thess- uh, First um, Corinthians, uh, and it's in some others. Paul, again, is writing these letters to a church to address issues. Some of them are in response to letters that he has received from them, and he's answering questions. So First Corinthians, he's really going through a series of questions well, it starts out with some issues that he's discovered, and then there's some questions that he, they've asked him around chapter 7. You find he just starts talking about ma- uh, marriage and, and you know, your daughter and when, you know, people, when they should get married, when they shouldn't get married. And those, he's answering questions that they asked him. But in that, we learn some insight into God and God's attitude towards certain things and the way we should approach certain things. In this book of Ephesians, as with a number of his books, Paul is writing this basically to correct some things, to explain some things that were going off a little bit. And down the road, this church got off, but not, but not so badly at this point. But what I'm getting at is Paul's style of correcting them is very instructive to us because it tells us a little bit how God approaches us. And Paul doesn't launch into, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you need to get this straightened out. And if you don't get this straightened out, this is what's going to happen to you. Because that's, I think, often what preachers have done and we've sometimes done with our kids. But Paul starts out by just reminding them who they are. Reminding them who God is, what God has done for them, and reminding them who they are. And then, he, having reminded them of who they are, he calls them to account to act like who they've already been made to be. God never expects you to do something that you're not capable of doing. Now, God may expect us to do something we don't want to do, and God may expect us to do things we don't think we can do, but God knows what we're able to do far better than we do. And so, but Paul lays this foundation. And as a result, it is, it is very valuable to spend some time going through the beginning of what Paul's talking about here because it not only teaches us more of who we are in Christ than what he's done for us, but it even can, either reminds us of things we've already known before or as I'm going through it, it's showing me at a greater depth in my own personal life some of these pre- principles and some of these, uh, what, what God has done for us. So we began to go through, and we may only go through the first chapter, because I mean, we could spend a year on this chapter. And uh, I spent 18 months a number of years ago just on 1 Corinthians 12. So the Bible is rich, and, um, but th- there's so much in here. And as I explained to you, this to me is, this is like spiritual cheesecake. I mean, it's just you want to roll this around in your mouth, and you want to you know, just get the fullness of the flavor that's in it, because there's so much in this. So I'm going to begin and go through this, and then we've already went down through about uh, six verses last time. We may get stuck in them again. Not, stuck's not the right word. We may get in them again. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to start talking. And we looked at this last time, and I want to do it again. This tells us something about who God is, God's heart. Not just who God is by His title. Not just who God is by His, by his power and His ability. But this gives us an insight into God's heart. And, and this is so often what we're missing. We know what things that God has done. We know things that God has required. But we don't really know His heart. We don't know his, really know His heart. Last fall when Marilyn Neubauer was here on a Wednesday night, and she came to teach about healing and share the testimonies of her own life. And one of the foundation things she taught, which is really one of the foundations of her ministry, is that what, 
when she was healed of cancer, it was the revelation to her of how much God loves her that opened her up to the healing. And I think what we try to do is we try to take principles and teachings and practices and, you know, ten steps to this and six principles of this, and we extract them from the God who is the healer. We extract them from God himself. And so we try to learn the principles apart from God, and it doesn't work that way. So the foundation of it is really knowing what God is like. And part of how we know what God is like is seeing what he's done for us. And so these verses that we start out here, and we touched on them last time, really this is what is opening up to me even more than I've ever seen before in here. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, blessed, who has past tense, blessed us with every, with every, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's held nothing back. That fits in with Romans 8.32, which says, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How will He not also together with Him freely give us all things? God's not holding anything back. God's not in heaven just looking at us and saying, you know, I'm going to just give out to them what I think they can handle or what they deserve this year, and if they're a little better Christians than this year, then I'll give them a little more next year. That's not what God is like. God is generous. He's held nothing back. In fact, if you study the Bible enough and you study blood covenant, what you discover is God's already done everything for you He's ever going to do. So it's not a matter of convincing God to do something that He hasn't done yet. He's already done it, and He's already given it to us in Christ. Well, then how come I don't have it? How how come I don't have more of it? Because you don't understand what you have had, what God has done for you, or you may understand it, but you don't believe it yet. You're not receiving it yet. But God's not, there's nothing more God can do. There's nothing more for God to do for you. He's done everything He can do, and what He's done is everything it's possible for Him to do. So this verse tells us that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He's held nothing back. And then he begins to list what some of them are. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Those two little words, in love. What motivated him to choose us? What motivated him to choose us so that we could stand before him holy and without blame? Imagine that. God chose to do whatever it took so that you and I could stand before Him, not in judgment, but to be in His presence, holy and without blame. Why is that important? Because God is holy and without blame. Um, and, And that's what causes people to be afraid of God. This is what we talked a little bit on Sunday about the sting of death that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. The sting of death is sin. It's that I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account for my sin and that scares me that I'm going to have to do that. And God said, but I love you. I've made provision that you can stand before me holy and without blame which means we can have confidence to come before Him any time of the day or night, and we can have confidence to come before Him even when we've done something wrong. That's especially when we need to come to Him. Why? Because He made provision that even if you've done something wrong, you can come before Him and again be restored to being holy and without blame. And then we went down through and saw that, he cho- uh, that, uh, that verse 5, having predestined us, planned us ahead, For adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So what he did this in love. He was motivated by love for you and me. And he did this to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. 
That's worth spending time meditating on. He did it to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. He chose you and me to be able to stand holy and without blame before him because of his love for you. And he was moved by that love in order to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. And then it goes on to say, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So this is all displaying the measure of his grace, his goodness, his beneficence, his bounty, his love, his generosity, his goodwill, his nature. That's not what you think of God. That's not what I was taught in religion to think of what God was like. I was thinking of God as he's righteous, all right, but boy, you better not cross him. And many of you were raised in a religion that taught the same thing. But this whole thing was God's idea. It wasn't man's. We didn't convince him to somehow look the other way, find a way to let us squeak into heaven and be at least accepted in there. This was his idea. And stop and think about it. We were all running from him. None of us came to him and convinced him to accept us. The Bible says no one comes to him unless he draws them. Well, why would he draw you if he didn't want you? Why would he draw you to him if he didn't want you, and I don't mean want you to serve him, I mean want to have a relationship with you, want to spend time with you, want to talk with you and listen to you and be involved in your life and in the issues of your life. This was his idea. It wasn't ours. And yet we keep things from him and we we struggle with issues of life that he's waiting to solve. He's waiting to deliver us from. He's waiting to give us wisdom from. He's waiting to correct us when we even need correction because he loves us. To the praise of the glory of of his grace, which he freely, it goes on to say, which he freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. I want to read that in the New Living Translation because it's powerful. I am writing a letter to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So, excuse me, we praise God for the glorious grace which he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his own son and forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Wow. Well, verse 7 in the New King James goes on to say, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. And then he tells us what that is, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Wow. Notice it doesn't just say we have forgiveness of sins. It says we have redemption in Him. Forgiveness of sin is paying for our debts. Redemption is to buy back something that was already yours. And that takes us back to the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in the beginning, and we spent a couple of years ago, we spent a bit of time talking about the way God originally, or God created 
this world and created mankind in the beginning. In the beginning, he created us out of himself. Our bodies were formed, the body was formed out of the dust of this earth, and God created all the other creatures, but man is the only creature that God put life into out of his own lungs. He breathed into that man, and he became a living being. God took his own life and took that dead pile of dirt (laughs) called the man and went, and he became a living being, made in God's image. And there was perfect communion. There was nothing between them. There were no hidden issues between them. In fact, chapter 2 ends by saying they were both man and the woman. They were naked and were not ashamed. That doesn't just mean that they had no clothes on. There was nothing hidden. They had no hidden thoughts, no hidden agendas, no hidden motives. Everything was open before God. And all of God's kingdom, all of God's nature was open to them. There was no barrier between them. There was perfect communion back and forth. There was perfect provision. And the world that God made for them, God gave them a job. It was to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. It was to to till it, to take care of it, and cause it to prosper, and to grow, and to multiply. But all that God created in that garden was designed to help them along with that process. It didn't fight against them. It helped move them along in that process. And of course, chapter 3 comes. And as Lafayette Scales so aptly said, one man listen to the wrong voice, and we all got this mess that we're dealing with. But the moment sin came in, there was, an, there was a separation between God and that first man and that woman that you and I will never understand, the enormity of that gulf, of that separation. Because all we've ever known is living in a world of sin, dealing with our own sin. The only one that's ever lived here that, wasn't, that understood the enormity of what that was like was Jesus himself because he was a sinless lamb of God. And we get a sense of it when he's on the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe the desperation of that is coming for, because for the first time in his entire existence, he's feeling a gulf between him and his father because sin has now been placed upon him. And the Father has to withdraw His presence from Him because the Father cannot be in the presence of sin because it will destroy the sin, whatever the sin is in. And so the Father has to withdraw from Him and for the first time in all of His existence, Jesus is experiencing what you and I live in and are so used to all the time. And He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, He's quoting Psalms when He says that. And what I'm saying here is it's not just the forgiveness, it's redemption. Redemption means to buy back something that was already yours. So if you've ever gone to a pawn shop, if you've ever, you know, loaned somebody something, and to redeem it is to buy back something that you already had. And God bought you and me back. He bought mankind back to get us back where we were intended to be in the beginning. See, God had an intention and a plan for man. And obviously, God wasn't fooled. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't go, Oh my goodness, I never thought that that could happen. God wasn't taken by surprise. You say, well, why would God set it up that way? I had a uh, the senior partner in the firm that I practiced in out in Oklahoma when we were out there. I was having a conversation with him one day because he, he knew I was in Bible school. He knew what we, our background. And he said, can you answer a question for me? He said, why would God create man with, it, with, a, with 
the ability to rebel knowing he was going to do it. It just doesn't make sense. I said, well, it makes perfect sense because it shows you how much God loved that man and wanted a relationship with him to take that risk because God certainly could have created that man and that woman and, and, and controlled their will. But the problem with that is then the love that they gave to him is the love God made them give to him. And the only love that really is meaningful to someone is love that's freely given without any strings attached. If you've been raised in a home, and many of us have been, where there was a lot of manipulation and a lot of uh, controlling of people with, and their emotions, and with, sometimes it's with money, sometimes it's with fear, sometimes it's with the wrong kind of love. And many people are raised in homes where you know, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on. God's not a manipulator. Because to manipulate is to not walk in truth. To manipulate is to not be straightforward. And God is truth, God is light, and God only does things straightforward. That's why Jesus said about him in Matthew chapter 7, he says, if your son asks you for a loaf of bread, uh, you're, and you, you're not going to give him a stone, and if he asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a serpent. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven? In other words, God's not going to play games with you. He's not going to tell you something that's, that's, that's evil is good or something that's good that's evil. He's not going to play games with you. God's not manipulative. And if God were manipulative, then man never would have sinned because God would have put him in the garden and made him love him. But that doesn't mean anything. That's the problem with manipulation. If you're raised in a family where there's a lot of control and manipulation, what drives that is the people that are manipulating you to do what they want never think you're doing it, are never sure whether you're doing it because you wanted to or because they made you. So there's always that insecurity, which means they've got to manipulate you more. God doesn't do that. So God created this man and this woman, gave them a free will. That's what part of what makes them in His image. Because God has a free will. And He gave them that free will knowing that they not only had the capacity to use it to reject Him, but that they were going to use it to reject Him. Why would God do that? Because their love back for Him, just as our love back for Him, means nothing if it's not freely given. That's why God doesn't make us love Him. Because if He made us love Him, it would never satisfy the desire that He has for us. So He was willing to risk everything so that that first man and that first woman could love Him back. And He's willing to risk everything for you and me so that we could love Him freely back. Because God made a plan and He was willing to pay whatever the cost was, even to His own son's life, to redeem us back into what God originally intended for us. And that's the point here. What God's described, what Paul's describing here, this relationship where we stand before him holy and without blame, where we stand before him in a relationship of a father and son adopted into the family because of his desire, because of the pleasure of his goodwill. That's what he created him for to begin with so that they could stand before him holy and without blame so that they were his children and he loved them. And we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb back into that original standing before the Father. Let's go on. Verse 8. According to the riches of... Verse 7 ends with, According to the riches of His grace, 
keep saying that, according to the riches of His grace, according to the riches of His grace, according to the riches of His grace, and according to the measure of His grace, as an indication of how gracious He is, as an indication of the extent and the glory of His grace. It starts by talking about His grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, verse 2. Verse 8. His grace which He made to abound towards us. That word in the Greek actually means to superabound. Some translations say to lavish. Paul is telling us God in redeeming us lavished upon us His grace. And some of you have heard me describe it this way, but it's kind of like, and I want to take the time to go through these words and kind of draw these out because we're meditating on this scripture together tonight. Because if you just read through it, you don't get it because we read through it through the prism of our own thinking. We read through it through the narrowness of our own thinking about God. And so although we may read the word lavish, we interpret that in terms of our own value system, in terms of our own measure. Because the word lavish is a relative term, which means it all depends on what somebody has. If you go downtown and you go to one of the rescue missions and you talk to somebody and they say, well, look, I've got what, you know, whatever I have, I'm going to lavish on you, you're probably not going to get too excited. Because if they want to lavish it on you, they can only lavish what they have. So lavish means I'm going to be abundant with you, but my abundance that I'm giving you is only based on how much I got. But if Bill Gates were to come in here tonight, say, you know what, I'm real generous tonight. I'm just going to lavish what I have on all of you. Now you've got a reason to get excited because Bill Gates has a little more than that person at the rescue mission. We're not talking about Bill Gates. We're talking about God. We're about God whose streets are paved with gold. We're talking about God who uses his building materials. We've got wood here, and we're going to have some other materials here, carpet and other things like that. But God paves, he walks on gold, pure gold. His doors of New Jerusalem are pearls, hundreds of feet high. We're talking about God who created this infinite universe with his words. Whose, whose glory, who, who, who dwells, the Bible says, in, in unapproachable light. God. This is the God, one, who's lavished upon you His grace. Now, I've, I've used this before, in, in, and I'll, some of you have heard of me, but will bear with me because we go through it again. When... I was growing up, I was one of five boys. I was the oldest of five boys. And, and one of our treats was when my mother would come home with ice cream. It's still my treat when my wife comes home with ice cream. I like ice cream. And so what we would do is she, we would bring the, she, with five boys, we're going to eat the whole half gallon. And so she would take it and she would dispense it out into the bowls. And then the best part is she'd go to the refrigerator and pull out the Hershey's chocolate. Now here's what my mother did. My mother would take, some of you are too young to remember what they were, but it was a can opener. And you would, with a little, you know, the point on one end, and you would go like this, on one side, and then you turn it around, you have to put a little, little hole on the other side or else it wouldn't pour out. And then she would take it and she would kind of pour it over the top of the, I'm getting hungry. She would take it and pour it over the top of the ice cream. 
you know, and go like this, and she'd lick it off like that, and she'd go around, you know, until she had the four bowls because my youngest brother was too young at that point to eat ice cream. That was nice. My idea of Hershey's chocolate was instead of taking it with a can opener, which would go over the electric can opener and stick it under there and have it go around, and then take it to my bowl and just turn it over and let it all just ooze out over the top of my ice cream till it was more chocolate than it was ice cream. That's in my mind what lavish is. Lavish is to take all I got and to turn the container upside down and pour it out on you. And I think we think that when God's been gracious to us, it's as if God's opened his can of grace. And he's cut, because he's only got a limited amount, remember. He can only do it. So I got to give Danny a little dab, and I got to give Dawn a little dab, and Bethy a little dab, and I got to go hand here and give Richard, and you know, be careful, you know, give it, you know, because I'm not sure I'm going to make it back there. And that's our concept, is, well, you know, I need some grace today. But the Word of God says that when he redeems you, when he redeems you, he took, his, he took his can of grace. Now, look at what it's already said about grace up until now. It goes back into, it goes back into um, verse 5, it says, And having predestined us to adoption of sons according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory. He, made, he adopted us according to the good pleasure of His will, which is, gives praise to the glory. The word glory means magnificence, the weightiness, the substance of His grace. And then verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through the blood, His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. And made to abound, lavish. So God took His can, which means the whole amount that He had. And for each one of us, He dumped it over on us. For each one of us, He dumped it. He didn't just, that's not a little dabble, do you? For those of you that are old enough to remember Bill Cream. God has held nothing back. He's poured out His heart of love and of grace and of mercy on us. And he, but He didn't pour it out directly on us. He had to pour it out on us through Christ. And here's the key. Because in these first 14 verses, the words in Him, in Christ, or through Christ, in 14 verses appear th- eight times. Little subtle things that it's easy to miss as you're reading through but are so critical to understand. He adopted us in Christ. He's redeemed us in Christ. He's poured out and lavished on us His grace in Christ. In Christ. Through Christ. By the means of Christ. What does that mean? And here's why it's so important. Because, what, at least I'm going to tell you what my thinking used to be. My thinking used to be that I came to Christ, I, I received Christ as my Savior, that opens the door for me to come into God's family, and I'm now God's child. And I've done it up here, but I won't, well, I may do it, because if you can see me in the back. 
I used to think that was, you know, that what the Bible says is Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I kind of imagine, and this is just my imagination, you know, that maybe John was sitting next to him, and then Peter, you know, and then Paul probably, I'm not sure of the exact order, but, the, you know, they were all, you know, got, you go through the first 11 apostles, and, you know, and then you've got Philip, and then you've got all the others over here, and somewhere, way, way, up towards New Hampshire maybe, Somewhere over there is John, this John. Look it over, you know, well, we're sitting here at the right hand of Christ, of God. And it's nice, to, I'm glad I'm here. But, I, you know, I don't feel too close here. Until suddenly one day I re- go over to chapter 2. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy, oh, there it is again, God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, He was motivated by that love. I just stuck to the floor again. Even when we were dead, dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, not in addition to Christ, we didn't join a club We didn't join a religion. We didn't join an organization. We joined Christ. We were joined to Him. United with Him. Made one with Him. This is why Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples in John 14, 15, and 16. He says, abide in me. What's that mean? You've been joined to me. Now live as if you're joined to me. John 17 talks about union. He says, Father, his prayer was, Father, that they may know that just as you and I are one, so are they and I one. They're one with me as I'm one with you, so they're one with you. And guess what? Because of that, they're one with each other. So when you came to Christ, when you received Christ, when I received Christ, we were fused in Him joined into Him, united with Him. What that means is that everything He is, you are because you're in Him. Not because you've accomplished it on your own. Not because you've earned it on your own. Not because you've been faithful to do it on your own. Simply because you're in the One who's done it. You've been joined to the One who's righteous. That makes you righteous. You've been joined to the one that's holy. That makes you holy. And this is when we celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate communion with Him. We celebrate our union with Him, which is why in John 6, Jesus started saying things, in order to be with me, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. You've got to take me into you. You've got to be joined with me. This isn't some symbolism when the, the Bible calls us the body of Christ. And He's the head of the body. Now, we have this expression. My mother used to use it all the time. You know, I'm so forgetful today, I might have left my head at home. If I went, you know, have you ever heard that expression or something, something like that? But you, you can't forget your head and leave it home. Why? Because your head is joined to your body and your body's joined to your head. So you don't say, my head came but my body stayed at home. You may feel like your body stayed at home 
where you may feel like your body's here, but your head stayed home. But I got news for you. If you came, they all came together. Because the moment you leave your head somewhere else, you stop living. Now think about that. That's important. Because you don't think about your body separate from your head. I mean, if you're getting a pain somewhere, but you don't go to the doctor, you go to the doctor and say, I'm sick. Why? Because you think of your body as one whole. Because they're one. Your body's united to your head and your head... It's kind of silly to talk about them separately because you're just you. In the same way, Christ is the same way. You're Christ and He's you. And our minds have trouble wrapping around that, but it's what the Word of God teaches. It will change how you see yourself because what we've done because of how we've been trained religiously and because this is so far beyond what we can imagine, what we do is we think ourselves as belonging to Christ as if we belong to a club. And he's out there as the head, the perfect example, telling us what we ought to do. And now we've got to go figure out how to do it and find the strength and the faithfulness and the righteousness and work this all up ourselves to do it. No, you're joined to him. And the problem is we try to do all this on our own and we forget we're joined to him who's well able to do it. He is our righteousness. This is why Paul's telling him this because he's telling he's going to tell him in chapter 4 now start acting like that. Instead of trying to get somewhere realize what he's done for us in Christ and now he enables us to live it out. He doesn't send you out an assignment. Now that I've saved you Richard go get your life straightened out. You can't. Not just Richard none of us can. He doesn't want you to, because then we'd stand before God and say, Hey, He got me saved, but look what a great job I did in straightening myself out. Well, you'll never get there, because you can't on your own. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Jesus said in John 15, He says, You are the branch, and I'm the vine, or the tree. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing on your own. And that's why he says, your job isn't to bear fruit. Your job is to abide in me. If you abide in me, I'll bear the fruit through you. As long as that branch attaches to that tree, and we're coming up hopefully soon, well, we'll begin to see the trees produce leaves. Hopefully. (laughs) But the branch doesn't produce the leaves. The tree produces the leaves. It's the sap flowing up out of that cold, wet ground, works its way up through the trunk, and eventually works its way out through the branch. And that's what produces the leaves. That's what will produce the apples and the pears or whatever the fruit, if it's a fruit tree. The life is coming up out of the tree and it produces it. So all the branch has to do is stay connected to the tree and it will produce fruit. So when he says in here all these eight in hymns, he's trying to get across to us. Every time he talks about what God's done for us, he tells them, but he did it for us in him. So we just have to walk in him. In him we live and move and have our being. It's all through the Bible, all through the New Testament. All right. 
I get excited about this because it's so powerful. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, therefore it is again. God's taking pleasure in this. Takes pleasure in what he's done for us. He takes pleasure in giving us understanding of what he's done for us. It talks about a mystery here, but it's not to be a mystery anymore. It was a mystery before Christ came. But it's not a mystery, it's been revealed. That's what this book is intended to do. Having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, this was God's idea, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that just means when the time was right, that He might gather together in one all things, there it is again, in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in Him. Oh, this, I didn't even think of this one. Let me just go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Because notice what he says here. That He might gather together in one, as one living being, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in Him. Hebrews chapter 12. You might want to write this down. Hebrews chapter 12 follows Hebrews chapter 11. You'll only hear that here. I I say that for a reason. Because in chapter 11, he's gone through a list of people that have walked by faith. Chapter 10 ends with a warning that he doesn't take pleasure in those who pull back. but, But he rewards those who are faithful to the end for the just shall live by faith. And then chapter 11 goes into an ex- a definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then starting in verse 2, it goes through a whole series of examples of people that have gone on before us that live by faith. And you've got Enoch in there. You've got, you've got Moses in there. Moses' parents are in there. You've got Abraham in there, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You've got unnamed people in there. David, you've got some of the judges that are in there, and then it comes down through the end of it talking about unnamed people. And then having said all that about, these are people that have, that have gone on before us. They're in heaven. They've run their course. They've finished their race. They've gone, my part's done. I'm in heaven. I can just sit back and I can just sip iced tea or whatever, you know, and just, it's done. That's not what the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also... Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He's saying, again, he's motivating them. He's saying, don't you understand all these people I've just named for you, they've gone on before us, but they're not finished. They're looking down over the banister of heaven at you and me because we have our part to play yet. See, this is what Ephesians is telling us. We're all one. If you're in Christ, you're not only one with everybody in this room right now that's in Christ, you're one and I'm one with every other Christian on the face of this earth right now, but not just with every other Christian on the face of this earth right now, every other Christian that's ever lived. We're all part of His body. It's an enormous body. Some part of His body's already gone on. Some part of His body's still here. And if He delays in coming back, there's still more that haven't come along yet. Just like the example that always comes to mind is the children of Israel 
when they came out of Egypt. And they come to the edge of the Red Sea, and of course, now they realize the problem. They're rejoicing because they're out of Egypt, but there's this obstacle in the way before they can get out of Egypt called the Red Sea. And not only that, what complicates it is Pharaoh's changed his mind, and he's got 600 chariots bearing down on them. And so God, you know the story, God parts the sea, and they all go across on dry land. So the riverbed is dry. But it dawned on me one day, there's, they estimate, the Bible says, what it tells us of statistics, is that there were a, a, about 600,000 men of fighting age among the Israelites. But if you extrapolate that into families, there was probably somewhere between 2 to 4 million of them. Well, they're not going to all cross the Red Sea at once. That means that when they started out, we'll say this is Egypt. They started out, you had all 2 million of them over here. And God parts the sea. And I don't know if Moses went through first, but there's a bunch of them start going through right after Moses. So there's a time when there's nobody yet on the other side. They're all over, most of them are over here, and some are in the process of going through. Now this is, sounds very simple, but it's got a point to it. And then as this goes on, more and more of them are over on this side. Some of them are still in the middle going over, and then there's still some over here waiting to start over. So somewhere in the middle of this process, you've got part of them still in Egypt. You've got part of them in the process of going through the sea. And if you've got the rest of them are already over here. And that's the picture that the writer of Hebrew gives here. They were all one nation, but some of them were still in Egypt, and some of them now were out in the wilderness, and some were still in transit, but they're still all one nation. And what we look at ourselves in terms of where we are in this process and forget there are others that have gone before us, others that are with us in this process, and some that still have to come after us. But in God's eyes, we're all one. And the picture here is that the ones that have gone before us and received their reward, they're not just sitting back saying, boy, I'm glad that's over with. It's not done for them yet. Why? Because they know they're part of us. They know we're part of them. They're leaning over the banister of heaven, rooting us on, watching what we're going. Your relatives that have gone on before you. I know Pastor Sam's looking over the banister at me every time I come in here. I can feel it. (laughs) Now, how much they know and don't know, I don't know. But they're aware of us because that's what this says. So we're part of something. And that's important to understand because the devil wants you to make you think you're alone. The devil would love to have you think you're the only one going through what you're going through. Nobody else has ever dealt with what you're dealing with. My goodness, if you only knew what I'm going through, is what people say. I may not know the details, but I know what the Bible says. There's no temptation that's come against you that's not common to man. So the details may be different, but it's basically what we're all going through. And it's what they went through. So we can learn something from how they handled what they went through, which is why chapter 11 is in there. They did it by faith. Not by their senses, not by their emotions, not by looking at how things looked and complaining about what the way things looked or how they feel. They did it by faith in what God told them and they endured to the end and they're looking down now encouraging us by faith that we will do it to the end and we will finish our course because they realize what's at stake. You and I are part of something that's so much bigger than Faith Christian Center, so much bigger than your family, so much bigger than what's on the earth right now of Christians. We're part of something, and I believe it's coming to a head. 
I believe we're coming to that day when Jesus is coming back, which means there's even a greater urgency in heaven because there's a greater spiritual activity. The enemy knows his time is short, and so he's going to pull out every stop he can to try to discourage us, get us to quit, think you're alone, I'm never going to make it. But see, if you know you're part of something bigger than you, if you know you're part of something and there are others encouraging you, even praying for you that you don't know are praying for you, then it can help us be strong enough to go through and finish our course. And so let's go back to Ephesians now because this is what Paul is talking about here. Verse 10, In the dispensation of the fullness of times, and we may well be getting there, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which we just looked at, and which are on the earth, that's us right now, in Him. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. You're rich! Do you understand you've got an inheritance? It may not be in this earth, but the stuff of this earth is meaningless. It's temporary. It rusts, it rots, it needs to be polished. It, it gets inflation and it isn't worth as much. People want to steal it. You've got to protect it and lock it up. But there's a wealth that's provided for us. There's an inheritance that you and I have in heaven that's waiting for us. That's what drove the Apostle Paul on, no matter what came against him. That's what drove the early church on. That's what's always driven the church on, to persevere and go through the obstacles, because they're not living their life for what they're going to get out of it here. They're living their life with a perspective that there's a reward. There's an inheritance that's waiting for us. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for this momentary light affliction, you ought to read what that momentary light affliction was like. He was beaten. Three days he spent shipwrecked in the ocean. Three or four times he was beaten with the same types of things Jesus was beaten with. He was in jail over and over again. Most of his letters are written in jail. Paul calls it, at one point, it was in Derby, he was left for dead. They came out and laid hands on him. He got up and went right back in there again. What drives a man like that? It's not just his... It can't be his personality because at some point he says, I'm, I'm, I'm weak, I'm in fear and trembling. At some point he says, please pray for me so that I'll have the boldness to speak what I need to speak. So it wasn't Paul's natural personality. It was a drive to do what he was called to do because he was looking for a reward by faith. He had an inheritance coming to him. And that's what had him... That's why he called it a momentary light affliction. is earning for me an eternal weight of glory. And I'm concerned because I think the church of this age, either we've lost sight of it or we've not been taught much about it. The Bible, you know, the church tends to go through pendulum swings. You know what I mean by that? So you have, you know, back 50 years ago, everything in the church was all about glory, all about heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a glorious day that's going to be, you know, and very little about, you know, what we got to do here. But we've come through a period of time when it's the other way. We've been so focused on the blessings of this life and what God will do for you and how God will prosper you, and all that's here, that we've lost sight of the inheritance. And so Paul's prayer here is, and we'll have to end with this, in him we have an inheritance. Verse 11, being predestined, that means planned ahead of time for you according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of His will again. There it is again. 
according to his plan, according to his will, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's motivated everything he's done for us, and he's done everything for us it's possible for him to do, is already done. And what motivated him, what motivates him today is his love for you. What motivates him today is he wants to have you back in the relationship that he originally had that first man and that woman, where there's an openness, where there's nothing between us, where there's a free trust back and forth, where he's the one we look to for our needs. He's the one we trust instead of all the things the world has to offer us, that he has that place in our heart that belongs to him, that the place that he, we have in his heart, he has in our heart. I'm going to say that again. That the place that we have in his heart, he has in our heart. And I think one of the reasons most Christians don't have him in that place in their heart is we don't really understand that we have that place in his heart. And as I read through these and meditate on this and see this over and over again, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to satisfy the desire of his heart in love, in order to satisfy the rich and intense love with which he has, it's beginning to open up to me the place that I have in his heart. And that opens up a place in my heart for him that's beyond what I've ever given him before. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful tonight for the word of God that you've given to us. We're so grateful, Father, and we, we confess that so often we just read it. And we read it in some of these verses and some of these chapters we've read so many times they're just words to us but they're not they're the word of god they're your word god breathed spirit breathed word inspired of the apostle paul inspired by the holy spirit not just 2000 years ago but today and every time we open it so that you might communicate to us through your spirit some more about you and about your heart and about your nature and about your love and about the place that we have in your heart, about what motivated you. And Father, tonight, we trust that the seeds of those revelations, the seeds of those understandings and insight have been deposited in our hearts. And so we come together as we close tonight to pray along with the Apostle Paul that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the hope of your calling for our life, what you've called us into, not just what you've called us to do, but the relationship that you've called us into. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might see it with the eyes of our inner man, that we might embrace it, walk in it, and fully enjoy the place that you have, we have in your heart tonight. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.